these two chapters that we're, we've been going through, we've been taking some time going through them. And the reason for that is uh, because Jesus, this is the longest discourse uh, that he had given, especially in relation to end time events. And uh, it's in uh, what we believe an abbreviated form within like 31 verses. I mean, there's more to it as we get into the other, the last part of it, but the first 31 verses really uh, show us the, a panorama of, uh, of the beginning of the tribulation, the, the midpoint of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, what many call the great tribulation, although it's been used to encompass all seven years. And then finally, culminating in the return of Jesus to the earth. And, and I think that's pretty important, don't you? Uh, to have an understanding of that, especially in light of the other scriptures. The Old Testament has a lot to say about the end time events, believe it or not. And so we've been going through this, and uh, the doctrine here is really important, and, and it behooves us to take some time, and we have been. We've been taking our sweet time with it, and uh, I don't apologize for that, although I guess I am. Um, but this is such a great and wonderful uh, passage, and... Um, it's great and wonderful because the Lord is showing us things that haven't taken place yet. And the things that we have been talking about uh, concerning Matthew 24 is really focused on Israel in the last days. Israel and uh, as a nation and uh, the church is not present in this. We've already been raptured to glory and the Lord is showing uh, to Peter, James and John and Andrew on the Mount of Olives just uh, east of the Temple Mount. He's there speaking with them, telling them these things. And so as we... I've been showing this chart for some time, and I'll continue to do it as we go through. We're still in this uh, mid, mid part of the Holy Week. It's Wednesday uh, that Jesus is giving this discourse to his disciples. And it's uh, the 12th of Nisan, which equates to April 1st. And we know the dates of these things when they occurred. And just the day before Jesus would give his, or have the Last Supper, the last Passover dinner, the night after this, he would have that Passover meeting with his disciples. And then the very that very night and early in the next morning, he would be falsely accused and ultimately crucified on Friday. And, and hallelujah, the third day, he rose again, right? And so uh, we're going to be continuing to look into this. Uh, let's read uh, Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 15. We looked at uh, a good chunk of this last week, but just to recap it before we get on. With it, uh, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24, it says, Therefore, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And if you remember, we looked at this in verse 15 is an obvious uh, time reference for us concerning where in Daniel's 70th week this all is taking place that Jesus is speaking. And when he gets to verse 15, when he talks about the abomination of desolation, we're right near the center of this three and a half or this seven year period, what we would call uh, Daniel's 70th week, right in the center there. And I believe it is the midpoint, and it corresponds roughly to uh, Revelation 13, where the Antichrist is finally revealed for who he is. And he puts an image of himself in the temple. And the the false prophet, who is his evil counterpart, uh, forces all on the earth, all people, to take the mark of the beast, which is going to be a mark on their right hand or in their forehead, signifying the name, the number, or the name of the beast, and without it, you will not be able to buy or sell. And we're already seeing the, the foreshadowings of this in our economy now with 
the, the drive to go to a, a central uh, bank digital currency. And trust me, folks, you don't have to trust me. The Bible's already told us when that happens, you will have less control over everything, over your money. They will have the ability. And this is just the beginning. But we know that in the end, after the church is removed, the technology is going to be well in place for that kind of thing to happen. Did you know that there's been no other time in history that that prophecy could have even been fulfilled? Because the technology wasn't available. But now it's commonplace, easy to do. They've been wanting to put together a currency, a digital currency, for a few years now. But we're resisting it. You rebels. <laughs> we're in their way, and I'm glad to be in their way. I wish we could go back to even though it's not convenient. I digress. I'm sorry, but I, I just love to go back to paying everything in cash and just being nobody can tell what I'm buying. You know, it's like I can go to the store and you know buy ammo for my you know whatever, and I don't have to worry about my credit card being canceled. Um, but this end time calendar, we, we can see. Uh, we are right here, basically. We know that we are in the last part of the church age, and we know that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. But after the rapture of the church, we know that we're going to be going, uh, we're not going to be going through it, but the Jews and the world are going to be going through what is called the Great Tribulation. And that man in the middle is not Jesus. He's black and he's got a crown, and you can't see it. But, uh, oh, I forgot to put 666 on his crown. Um, but he's the Antichrist. He's the guy in the center of this whole thing, uh, demanding worship, cutting the, uh, the Jews off from their offerings in the temple that hasn't been rebuilt yet. Does anybody see a temple on the Temple Mount right now? There's not a temple. There is a Dome of the Rock, an Islamic uh, you know, sanctuary, but there is no temple yet. So we are not in the tribulation. Just, for the, just to break the news, news flash, we are not in the tribulation. We're getting close. Jesus talks about these things in the first four, uh, verses 14 through 14, or 4 through 14. We've already looked at it the last couple of weeks. Those are like the, the birth pangs. And if those are the birth pangs after the churches are moved, I like to call what we're going through right now the Braxton Hicks contractions. They're false signs. There's signs leading up to the time when the church is removed, and then it's going to go like a flood. Wait till you see. Actually, you'll never see it, thank God. We'll never see it. But when that happens, when the church is removed, the world is going to change very, very rapidly. Because you and I, folks, are the thorn in the side of everything progressive right now. Do you know that? The presence of the church and even conservative people, they are the problem with, with this progressive uh, utopia that they think that they, I think they're sniffing glue because it's not going to happen. Or it's not going to happen for very long because the Lord is going to bring an end to it. Hallelujah? Hallelujah. Yeah. So remember, the church is not present during Daniel's 70th week. What Jesus is speaking about right now, the church is not present. The 70th week is a seven-year period where God is going to turn again his attention to the Jews and Israel and the promises that he has made them. It's also going to be a time where he's going to pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected him. And the last time we were together, we also looked at the scripture concerning this abomination of desolation. Who is this abomination of desolation? Well, it seems that in history, there were really two abomination of desolations. The first one was in 167 or 169 BC, over on this time of before Christ. And um, so that is already history. That, that, that's already history. Uh, and Daniel 11.31 records and tells us that this person, this first uh, abomination of desolation, was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a Syrian king who had captured Jerusalem in the 2nd century B.C. And it's recorded that Antiochus caused the, the oblations, the offerings, the sacrifices in the temple at that time, back in 167 B.C., to stop and instead, he put an image of Zeus in the temple and then sacrificed a pig on the altar. And certainly he's a precursor, a, a prefigure, if you will, of this Antichrist who is coming yet. And how do I know that? Because Jesus, writing in 33 AD, 
On April 1st, the 12th of Nizan, he says, the abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about, when he comes, and then he goes on, right? And, and, he, and, and so this, you know, then the, the Jews are going to flee. They need to flee and hide. So this second abomination of desolation in verse 15 is the one that Jesus referred to in the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel 9.27, and that is even yet future to us today. And this is what Daniel 9.27 says. Then he, speaking of the prince who is to come, speaking of this beast, this antichrist, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In other words, a week of years. This is Daniel's 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall make one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolation. So this abomination of desolation is called the prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26, but it's someone we know as the Antichrist. The Apostle John, in his letter, in his first epistle, Writing it after the, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, John wrote this letter and he said, Little children, it is the last time. And you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Because remember, John, the author of this letter, he was there when Jesus gave this discourse. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Peter's brother, they were there. He remembers, and he also knows that this Antichrist is yet future. You have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. The idea is that uh, as time gets closer, there are going to be many who are going to rise up. But there's many anti, little Antichrists, and then there's the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this man of sin, who midway through that 70th week, that seven-year period, is going to do exactly what Antiochus did. And he's going to take it even further. And then he's going to go after the Jews and he's going to slaughter them. It's going to make the Holocaust in Germany in, in the 40s, 1940s, look like child's play. He's going to slaughter and go after the Jews and the Christians. Now, we also looked at this place. As we looked at verses 16 through 20, we saw how the Jews who receive Christ during the tribulation will be provided for or sustained in Basra or in Petra in modern-day Jordan, and they will be sustained there for three and a half years during the second half of the tribulation. And remember, we looked at Isaiah 63, the first four verses that talk specifically about that. And then in Revelation 12, the first six verses speak of this in, a, in an allegorical form. In verses 13 through 14, um, of Revelation 12 speaks specifically about this. So if we just took a quick overlook of, of Daniel's uh, 70th week and then Matthew 24 and Revelation, we can kind of put this together in some kind of cohesive uh, diagram. Now, I, I will say this, that um, the references that I have on this chart that speak of uh, uh, the the, re the revelation verses uh, that, that there's some room for debate on whether the, where some of those chapters line up. I will certainly admit to that. But if we just look at it, verses four through fourteen that we've already looked at talks about the first half of Daniel's seventieth week. Um, in verse nine of this chapter, it spoke of it and called it the tribulation. And um, even though this whole period has also been called the Great Tribulation. Uh, verses 15 through 20, the midpoint that you see there in the middle, that is um, uh, the beginning, or the, the, mid, the midpoint, and also the beginning of the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And then finally, in the second half of that three and a half year period, uh, is the second half of Daniel's week, and that is called the Great Tribulation. And then in verses 29 through uh, 31, we finally get to the culmination of that, and that is the second coming of Christ physically to the earth. Don't get the rapture of the church and the second coming. They are two separate events. They're very different, very different. They are not the same. One is where we meet Christ in the air, and this one over here is when he comes down to earth with us. So there's a big difference between the two. It's important to know the difference. So let's read now verses 21 through 31. Notice what it says. 
And Jesus even tips us off here that we are definitely now past the midpoint uh, because that was verses 15 through 20. Now we are definitely in the second half of this tribulation in, in, in proper form. It says, for then there will be great tribulation. Remember the birth pangs. It's going to start really, it's going to be bad in the beginning of the tribulation, but as, as time goes on in that seven-year period, it's going to get increasingly, increasingly more difficult, and the events are going to ramp up in frequency like a woman giving birth. And ladies, you know what that's like. And so it's going to get really bad. It's going to get really bad. And the, the good news is, is you're not going to be here. And you know, some people say, well, Rob, you're just an escapist. And I've said this before. And yes, I am. I'm glad to be, I don't want God's wrath to be poured out upon me. Do you? I mean, raise your hand if you want God's wrath. Okay, only one person. I'm only kidding. No, we're not going to see it, folks. But it's what the Bible says. It's, it's awfully convenient for me as a pastor, as a Christian, to say, I'm going to escape this, and so will you. It is convenient. I, I get it. And that's okay, because God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. How about you? So he makes the rules. I don't. I'm just glad that he's not going to put me through his wrath. Because he's already taken it out on his son. Why is he going to do that to his bride? Because he won't. He just, he won't do it. So verse 21, it says, For then there'll be great tribulations such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So thankful that he put that there. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And here's a spooky little phrase. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, there's a nice time reference for us. Of those days, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So as we look at verse 21 here, we are definitely in the second half of this tribulation period. Notice, for then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation. You know, compare this with verse 9. In verse 9, it says, there will be tribulation. And then when we get to the second half, he says, it's going to be great tribulation. In other words, just like what he said, it's going to increase and increase. And so now he's really given us the, uh, the understanding that this is going to get really bad. Now, in verse 21 here, we believe that Jesus is quoting from Daniel's um, uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 12. And this is what Daniel said that we believe Jesus is quoting from. It says, at that time, speaking of the end days that, that are yet coming upon the earth, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Who is Daniel's people? The Jews, Israel, correct. And there will be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel, in other words, the Jews, Israel, shall be delivered. They're going to be delivered. It's not going to be a judgment for them. They are going to be delivered. The Lord is coming back to deliver them. And on all the unbelievers, there's going to be judgment for them. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Now, there are a few other places in the scripture where this phrase, great tribulation, is directly referring to this time at the end. One is in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. And this is after the second, excuse me, after the sixth seal judgment. What does it tell us? After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, John speaking here, he says, I, I, And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, these are the tribulation saints, those who will be killed during the tribulation period, made up of Jew and Gentile. But they'll be slaughtered by the Antichrist. He's going to love the whole idea of having in, 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 you know, camps where they just line people up. And it's going to make uh, Hitler look like an, an infant. What the Antichrist has in store for the Jews. His hatred for God and the people of God. Meaning the Jews first. And also the Christians, those who, who, who do come to faith during the, the tribulation period. It's going to be very difficult. The delusion is going to be so great. Thank God that you, we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Because he has a plan for us. And he's going to take us out before he pours out his wrath on a world. And then he begins to deal with his remnant again. Because God has not given up on Israel. We are all going to meet in the thousand year reign after his second coming. We're all, all those promises to Israel, to the church, all of it will come into this one nice little tied up bow gift to the Old Testament saints and the, and the church and the tribulation saints. They will all meet up at that point. And we will serve our Lord forever. Notice, uh, there's another wonderful verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25. It says, when you beget children, and again, this was given to Israel around 1406 B.C. Okay, so it's about 3,500 years old now. This promise was given to Israel. 3,500 years ago from this day, roughly, okay? He says, when you beget children and grandchildren, and you have grown old in the land, and act corruptly, and make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And that's happened, hasn't it? It happened in the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. It happened after 70 AD when they were dispersed after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem they have been dispersed and now they're coming back into their land since 1948 but notice but from there he says when you um, and there in these lands that you're going to be driven and there you will serve other gods the work of men's hands wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. There seems to be a condition there, doesn't it? Are you going to seek him? Meaning the, 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 the Jews, are, are they going to seek him? They will at one point. But notice what he says in verse 30. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you, notice in the latter days. It's speaking of the days that are even yet future to us. When you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, never forget that, he will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. He swore it to them. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 30. Beginning in verse 4, now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Notice, the words concerning Israel and Judah, not the church, but Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, verse 5, we have heard of a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is, is ever in labor with child. Only in New York. <laughs> Only in the United States where they, they're so confused about gender. Now men are, you know, uh, anyway. 
Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? And here it is. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It's speaking of the day that Jesus is talking about. For that day is great so that none is like it. But it is the time of Jacob's trouble, a Jew but he shall be saved out of it. God is going to rescue the Jews when he comes back in his second coming. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up for them. That's interesting too. But notice in Joel, in Joel chapter 2, what does it say? It gives us, uh, it confirms what Jesus is speaking of. That day when that happens, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Speaking of that time of great trouble that is going to be on the earth, including his coming to the earth a day of darkness and cloud, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Sounds like Rochester. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has, uh, whom has never been, nor will there be any such one uh, such after them. Even for many successive generations, a flower devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array before them the people writhe in pain and all faces are drained in color they run like mighty men they climb the wall like men of war and everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks they do not push one another everyone marches in his own column though they lunge between the weapons they are not cut down they run to and fro in the city they run on the wall they climb in the houses they enter in at the windows like a thief the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Again, certainly there was some local um, things that were happening that this applied to, but it's looking even beyond to that time period because it's called the day of the Lord. That's a very specific time period yet in the future. And even Isaiah said this in uh, chapter 13, verse 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them, and they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. You know, I think we've read that before. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And notice, I will punish the world for its evil. Now, granted, there could have been some local understanding of this, but do you, can you see now that the prophets, sometimes they would jump in and out of things that were current, and then they would be talking about things way yet future. And it's, it's a little tricky to figure that out. But when it says here, I will punish the world for its evil, it's not talking about just a nation like Babylon or Assyria. No, God is saying, I am going to punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal... A mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger, it shall be as, a, as the hunted gazelle, and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people, and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their 
eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Awful time. And this speaking definitely of that time at the end. Because when the Antichrist and his armies come against Jerusalem, they are going to experience something that they've never experienced ever. It's going to be the worst ever. And see, if I was a Jewish person today, I would be running to Christ. Because I believe, folks, that the time of the Lord's coming for the church, for the bride of Christ, in the rapture of the church, I believe that that is going to be any time. It could be today, and I hope it is. Even before we eat. Yes, I know. Right now would be good. Just shut my mouth, Lord, and let's beam us up, Scotty. Sorry for the, I don't mean to cheapen that, but we're going to go up. We're going to be transformed just like Jesus was. So the great tribulation, the second half of Daniel, seems to line up with the, the, the final seven bold judgments, especially Revelation 6 through 18. But by this time, in verse 21, in the midpoint, the midpoint is past. The Antichrist and is, is put an image of himself in a new temple, which is not there now. Everybody agree there's no temple in Jerusalem right now, right? There is no temple, but it's coming. The church has to be removed first. And then the Antichrist, it tells us in Daniel, is going to make a treaty with the Jews. And part of that treaty may be to build their temple because a temple has to be there for him to desecrate at the center of that seven-year period. Does that make sense? It has to be there. It's not there yet. So we're not in the tribulation. Don't let anybody fool you. But from this point onward, things are going to get really bad on the earth. So much so that Jesus will tell us in verse 22 here, back in our text now. And he says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But notice, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So this elect that are mentioned here are the Jewish remnant. The church is not there, so it's not them. So who is this elect that he's referring to? He's talking about the Jewish remnant that will come to faith in Christ during that tribulation. And that will certainly include the 144,000 that were sealed to go through the tribulation. Those Jews in Revelation 7, the 12,000 for each tribe will be sealed. And they will be evangelizing certainly their fellow Jews and the world. And then he goes on in verse 23 and he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. And this is going to be helpful advice to those who are alive at that time. Because when Christ returns, there will be no missing it by any means. It's not going to be missed. And why? Because false prophets and false Christs will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now it appears by the Lord's statement here that the elect during this time will not be deceived. Because he said, if it was possible, even the elect. But they're not going to be deceived. But there is going to be a deception. Unbelievers in that time period yet future, is going, they're going to be deceived. Second Thessalonians tells us. Second Thessalonians tells us, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, notice this. The coming of the lawless one. Who is the lawless one? The Antichrist. He is coming according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And why are these unbelievers going to perish? Here's the answer. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and they, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So these are the unbelievers that will endure the wrath of Almighty God. And you don't want any of, anybody that you know to go through this, yourself included. I would encourage you, yes, the, the, this has a point to it, this message, and it should because... We're talking about real things here. This is not just something that, some allegory. This is not a child story. As I've been studying the Word of God, as we've looked at Revelation, I'm seeing all these things line up. Are you seeing it? Seriously. We've been talking about it. And there's a lot of stuff I could go into. (laughs) 
And Jesus said in verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. And that's what a good shepherd does, right? Aren't you glad that you serve the good shepherd? He tells you in advance what's going. And so there's no Jewish temple uh, on the Temple Mount. Right now, it is politically impossible for that to happen. They tried to do that back in the 90s. I, I think it was in the 90s. They tried to roll a uh, foundation stone, a cornerstone, to the Temple Mount, and it started a, a war. So it got abandoned. They had to stop. But they're ready. Therefore, verse 26, if they say, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Notice, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, verse 27 has confused some people about whether this is speaking of the rapture of the church or the second coming. And here is why I believe there is confusion. Because when we read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, they're both speaking clearly of the rapture of the church, and it's very different different than what we are reading here in Matthew 24. But there are phrases that sound similar, and that's why there is some confusion when people get to this and they read it. But hopefully um, I can dispel some of that uh, confusion. But let's read those rapture verses, and let's compare them with what we are seeing in Matthew 24. And I have something to show to you also. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, it says, For this we say unto you, notice Paul says, By the word of the Lord, this not, is not his opinion. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This sounds very familiar with what we're reading right now, doesn't it? Ah, but there's so many huge differences. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up, harpazo, in the, in the Latin, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Do you see that? We are translated and brought up to him. He never sets foot on the earth. And thus we shall always be the Lord. And then Paul wraps it up in verse 18. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Yes, that is a comfort. I want to go now. Is there a, an app on my phone, like a rapture button? It's just a big red button. You launch the app, out of here. I want to go. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians? Again, speaking of the rapture, very different from what is in Matthew here that we're talking about. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die, but some, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, sounds very similar to the trumpet here in Matthew, but it's different. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We just read that in Corinthians. For this corruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. So what we see here is a rapturesque passage. But in Matthew 24, there are a few verses with phrases and wording that sound very rapturesque, like we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But verse 27 here in Matthew 24 is referring to the time at the end of the tribulation at Jesus' second coming. Because when the rapture occurs, it will be in the twinkling of an eye. We just read it. Unseen by the world at large, but when the second coming of Jesus occurs, all the world is going to witness it. It will be a spectacle for all to see. It will be a global event there is no missing it. And Jesus even said, when you see a flash of lightning go from the, the east to the west, everybody's like, oh, wow. It's something very noticeable. <laughs> so this is going to be unmistakable, an unmistakable, unavoidable global event. And even Revelation 1 verse 7 tells us, behold, he is coming with clouds. And every, the word in the Greek is all or every. <laughs> Hence the English. And every, everyone, every eye will see him, when, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, not just some, all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So is this going to be something that everyone's going to see? Or is it just going to be like the rapture where we're going to be gone and the world's going to be like, where did these people go? 
We see their clothes here, perhaps. We don't see a body. And it happened. We can't deny it. I'm sure some guy from Europe, probably the Antichrist, will stand up. I know what happened to them. They were abducted by aliens. And the government of the United States will probably go, we've got some stuff in hangers in Area 51 that you guys really need to check out. That's where they went. God got them out of here so we can continue in this beautiful utopia and progressiveness. Oh, they're hoping. May God save their souls. Seriously. I make fun of it because I'm I'm a little bitter. Uh, But at the same time, God loves these people. So we need to love them, right? But we need to warn them. Because what they're thinking is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So there are many contrasts between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And these are just some of them. In the rapture, there's going to be a translation of all believers. In the second coming, that's not going to happen. In the rapture, the translated saints go up to heaven. In the second coming, the translated uh, saints return to the earth. In the rapture, the earth is not judged, but in the second coming, earth is judged and righteousness established. The rapture is going to be imminent any moment and signless, whereas in the second coming, it follows definite predicted signs, including tribulation. The rapture is not in the Old Testament, but in the second coming, it's predicted often in the Old Testament. In the rapture, it affects believers only. In the second coming, it affects all humanity The rapture occurs before the day of wrath. For God has not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't appointed us, the church, to wrath. That's who Paul was referring to. And why doesn't he need to pour out his wrath on you? Because he's already done it on his son, right? So we don't, he's not, Jesus is not a wife beater. He's not going to beat her up before he takes her or, or somehow make her more pure and holy before he takes her to heaven. No, by the blood of Christ, we've been made pure and holy. Right? That's the only reason. Correct? Correct the mundo? Yeah, let's go back to happy days. There are many more here. You can read them. But then he goes on. For wherever the carcasses, there the eagles will be gathered together. Ah, this is an interesting verse. What is he going to say now? Well, the word carcass in the original Greek is patoma, which means a lifeless body. It literally means a corpse. Um, And the eagles, um, it's aetos. It's the same word for eagle or a, a carrion bird. And usually eagles don't go after dead things. They like to go after living things. Eagles will swoop down and grab a salmon out of a lake and take it up to a perch and eat it. An eagle will swoop down and grab a a groundhog and take off with them. But if something's dead, decaying alongside the road, the vultures take care of that. The eagles are like, well, that's too good for me. (laughs) So this is probably referring to an eagle. Now, it can also stand for the eagle as a standard, meaning uh, the Roman military used this eagle as um, as their sign. Now, there are people who are are called preterists, and preterist means past. So there are people who believe in um, that those things that we're reading in Matthew 24 and Revelation, they believe that all took place in the first century at the destruction in 70 AD, including the return of Christ. I'm really confused by this. I've read what, what, what they believe, and it makes no sense to me. But this is not the Roman army. Yes, they use that as their ensign when they attacked. But this is not about that at all. Because in context, what are we talking about? Judgment. And then right before the second coming. That's the context. It's not about, at least this part of it is not about uh, 70 AD. Jesus is talking about a time yet future to us. That where the carcasses, and there's people, if you know of a, a people like Kenneth Gentry or Gary DeMar or even Hank Hanegraaff, there's a familiar term, a familiar name, they are preterists. They believe that all these things took place in the past, that there's no room for them in the future, which I think biblically is completely ludicrous. And these are smart men, so I don't understand why they go there, but that's okay. We live in America, right? You're free to think freely, right? Maybe. 
But this verse could mean a couple of things. Yes, when it speaks of an eagle or vulture, a bird of prey, eating carrion or dead corpses, it can only mean a few things. And the more obvious interpretation is probably the correct one. Take the Bible literally, unless an allegory is intended or a phrase is meant to be a metaphor. Just take it literally. Uh, You don't have to spiritualize everything and do gymnastics. It could speak of the spiritual corruption and the deadness of those on earth. Um, And I believe, more likely, it speaks of the physical corruption that's going to ensue in the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon, which is about, that is about to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Otherwise, we know it as Armageddon. I believe that's what it is referring to. And the Bible gives us some of the details of that battle. In other words, the fate of the wicked and the method of their destruction. Listen to these depictions in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. And it says, and this is speaking of the time just before the second coming of Christ. Zechariah, yes, an Old Testament prophet. Speaking of the time yet future, right before Christ comes, notice what he says in verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their own sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 8 tells this. And when the lawless one, who we know, who is he? The Antichrist, when he is revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Does that speak of the same event? And notice what it tells us in Revelation 19, verse 14. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's you and I, we believe, followed him, Christ, on white horses. Now notice verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing, Standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, pay attention to this, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's you and I too, folks. Except we don't have to do anything. I like that. We're just kind of like window dressing. He's coming back on the white horse, the sword of his mouth, whatever it is. I believe it's just his word because the Bible has been talked about as a sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I believe he's going to speak a word and they are all just going to disintegrate right in front of us. There won't be a need for all of us on the back with our nice white linen on our horses. There won't be any bloodshed on us, probably. Jesus is going to speak, and it's going to be a done deal. So whose side do you want to be on? You got it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Jesus. And notice, and... And, um, and all, so let's go on here. Verse 29 it says, Immediately now after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The, the powers of heavens will be shaken. Again, this phrase, immediately after the tribulation, this is a time reference for us to pay, uh, pay attention to. We don't have to guess here what this is because now the second half of the tribulation is over with. Now we're going to get to the coming of the Son of Man. And he comes back. And we've already looked at those conditions in Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah 13. But then verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And many people believe that when the sun, moon, and the stars are blacked out, that this sign of Jesus' coming obviously coming from heaven that it'll be a Shekinah glory. of of Almighty God coming back. And I like that idea. Why? Because the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're all going to be blacked out. And then what's going to be front and center? It's almost like a stage when the the curtain is like this and everything is black. And then the stage, and it's apocalypsis, isn't it? Isn't that what we, the first word in in Revelation? 
The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation starts. It's apocalypse. It means the unveiling. It's going to be all dark, and then the curtain is going to go like this, and then the Shekinah glory, the light above all lights, are going to come, and it's going to, everyone is going to see it, and they're going to be gnawing their, their tongues in fear and in freakish agony. And hopefully many, seriously, hopefully many will come. And the Lord will not turn his back. If they, he's a very merciful God. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But notice, verse 31, He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Now this is one of those other passages that sounds very rapture-esque. That's a term I made up. I don't know if there's an English word, but I, I, I'm just calling it that. It sounds like the rapture. But the Lord will, be, uh, will gather those who become believers during the great tribulation. And some might be tempted to, because of the, the language that's used here, to think that this is somehow the rapture of the church. But there's a few problems with this. Number one, if this is the rapture, then it would be a post-tribulation rapture. We don't believe in the post-tribulation rapture. Why? Because the Bible doesn't speak of it. So there's a real problem here. <laughs> All right? We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, and this is consistent with many other passages in the Bible and types, and we've looked at many of these already today, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. There's a bunch. And although this might sound similar to 1 Thessalonians 4, this passage makes no mention of the dead in Christ rising and those who are alive and remain being changed and caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. It makes no mention of that. So verse 30 speaks of Christ coming to the earth from heaven with his elect who are here, or, and gathering his elect, excuse me, who are on the earth. And when the Lord comes back to the earth at his second coming, he will bring with him the church from heaven who had already been raptured seven years prior to him pouring out his wrath. Now why do I believe that? Well, Zechariah tells us Zechariah says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is speaking of Armageddon. The city shall be taken, the houses riffled, the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. He's first going to come rescue his remnant in Petra, the Bible tells us that. And then he's going to march up to Jerusalem and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it'll cleave in two. And water, living water, will run. And in, the, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain shall, valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And thus the Lord my God will come. Notice what Zechariah tells us, that at the end, the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. Your Bible translation may say you, but in many of the, the Septuagint, the Targum, the Latin Vulgate, many of the other um, manuscripts say him. And it makes sense that it's speaking of him. In Revelation 19, when he comes back, it says, And the armies of heaven, clothed in white, in, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. In Jude, it says, Jude, Jesus' half-brother, wrote this. In Jude 4, 14. I'm sorry, Jude 14, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Prophesying even before the flood of the second coming of Jesus. And why? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's yet future. Speaking of those things. And he's going to send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect 
from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In the parallel account of this in Mark's gospel, it says this, that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So again, verse 31 has nothing to do with the church, and it's not a reference. It's not a reference to the rapture. But the elect are referred to here, those are the Jews who have believed in their Messiah during the tribulation, the Lord being faithful to the promises that he made to them. And we looked at, um, I believe we already looked at Deuteronomy 30, but even Isaiah 12 tells us that he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's going to gather together his elect, the Jewish remnant, specifically. There will be others that will be saved, but he's going to make sure he, he's going to be faithful to his promise to the Jews. So again, what does all of this do for us as we live in this time? And it's important for me to bring this up because, you know, this is some pretty heady stuff. <laughs> A lot of technical stuff. And it's been my great joy to go through this. But if all it is is just to fill my heart full of knowledge, because uh, knowledge can puff up and that doesn't make me any closer to God. But what makes me closer to God is I believe what he said. And that ought to, these things that we've been looking at, it ought to provoke us. It ought to provoke the believer and the unbeliever. It ought to provoke the believer because we know, what does it tell us? That in 1 John it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when we see him in the rapture, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And again, you've been purified in the blood of Christ once and for all. But practically speaking... Each one of us have things in our life that we're ashamed of, things that we're still doing perhaps. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's something that happens every now and then, and maybe you just haven't let go of it yet. Maybe you're involved in something right now you know is wrong. Well, based on this verse and based on the, the, the brevity of life here and the closeness that we are, if we're that close to, if we can start seeing the, the Braxton Hicks contractions, if you will, of that birth pangs of the tribulation, if we're already seeing these things start to assemble in some order, it ought to change my heart. And if it doesn't, you've got to ask some serious questions. Am I one of his to begin with? If none of this affects me, if I could care less, then I would ask you, are you a child of God? Are you? Are you a believer in Jesus? Because if you're a believer in Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells you. And the same Spirit that has indwelt you is the same Spirit that God has. And His heart is for people. I need to warn people and tell them the truth. Are, are you afraid to tell the truth? In all the truth? So help you, God. I do. Are you willing to tell the truth in love? And it's not easy telling people the truth sometimes because sometimes the truth hurts. I don't like people telling me that I'm a sinner. <laughs> now, you have to do it with tact and you have to do it in a way that they, they can receive. And it, it requires a great deal of tact and discernment and being led by the Spirit to speak to a soul. Pray about that. Don't just go and cut them off at the legs and start spouting things and holding up a placard. God hates you. You know, you see those guys down on Monroe Avenue or in Texas, you know, you know, and, and you know, it's just horrendous. That's not the spirit of God. Get off your high horse, pal, and get your heart right with God because that's not the Lord. You're not going to win anybody to Christ by bashing them over the head. Amen. Tell the truth lovingly. And therein lies the rub, right? Tell them the truth and love. And if they know that you really love them and you care about them, and you do it in a, in, a, in a way that they can receive, they might not like it, but they'll respect you for it. 
So these things that we're reading, but what about the unbeliever? You know, as we read about these things, the unbeliever has a lot of horror yet ahead of them if they don't turn to Christ. See, it's it's, it's really bad for the unbeliever because an unbeliever doesn't believe in God right now. They, They don't have any sense of the Spirit of God. They don't care at all. But folks, do you, do you see that the horror that's awaiting them? And hopefully during the horror, they will turn to Christ. But if they don't, then they live a life, they live a, a horrible time, and then they die. And then they are resurrected and sent before the great white throne judgment where they will spend an eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. To me, that is no way for any person But that is their lot if they don't choose Christ. And see, you and I have that message. We have the message that can change lives, change people. And I don't know about you, but we have this this treasure in earthen vessels. We are earthen vessels. We have this treasure within us. And it behooves us. It's our great joy. What, what a, uh, and I, I believe we're living in the last days, so we need to exhort and encourage and warn those around us about what is going to come on the earth. Paul said this, and we're almost done here, so bear with me. In 2 Timothy 4, what did Paul tell Timothy, his protege? He says, I charge you, therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Here it is. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're living in those days. There's all kinds of churches today preaching all kinds of nonsense, and they're, they're packed. Because people like, they have itching ears. They want to hear something. and Tell me something to make me feel good about me. Is it okay that I'm in, in this, in this you know, relationship with this person? I'm not married and they're of the same sex. Is that okay? There are churches that will say, oh, God is love. Child, be you know, set free. Just embrace each other. No. That's the worst thing you could say to them. Now, do you, do we, does God love those people? Yes, he does, but he hates the sin. Just as he hates the sin in my life. He hates the sin of, you know, back before I was saved, a fornicator. He hated that sin just as much as he hates homosexual sin. But why are churches embracing it? They should not be a church any longer because they're not upholding what God had said. Just close your doors then and tell people to go down the road to a real church. Because the real church doesn't preach that nonsense. It's simple. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So here it is, folks. We need to fulfill our ministry. And what is our ministry? Jesus gave us our ministry. Before he ascended, after his resurrection, he spoke to his disciples, and this is what he told them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which we are rapidly approaching There is our marching orders. Will you be faithful? Will I be faithful? I want to throw out the the, the net if I can throw it, you know. Are we willing to take that, that commission and say, okay, Lord, we are living, we're getting close. I see the writing on the wall, and we need to be about our Father's business. I need to be about my Father's business. You need to be about your Father's business. So if you want to be about your Father's business, stand with me and let's pray. And if you don't want to be about your father's business, I'd probably encourage you to stand anyway because people look at you funny. <laughs> really? You don't want to be about your Lord's business? Yeah, amen. I do. I do too. And I'm imperfect. And I'm full of 
I wish I could say I was just this, the most magnificent holy thing, but I know better. I know one who is holy. I want to be like him. And I'm not perfect, and I know none of you are too, but you know what? The Lord loves us nonetheless. And he's okay with the, 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 the stumbling, and, and, and the, he, he understands our frame. He understands. We just need to come to him and confess our sins often and receive him and walk with him and trust him and his promises. And he says, didn't he tell his disciples the night before he was arrested in the upper room, didn't he say, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might also be. He's coming for us. Are you excited? Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for this uh, wonderful passage, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you'd write it on the tables of our heart, Lord. And just make us sensitive to the leading of your spirit, Lord. And bring a brokenness to our hearts, Lord, that we would be so willing to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you got to die. <laughs> that old man and you, sir, has to die. Lord, may I be, have the grace to look at myself in the mirror and say that. And may it be true of all of us. Lord, thank you for your love and your great grace. Thank you for the great promises. And so, Lord, um, we just ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.